When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking with Library Director Susan Cussell about her viral tweet. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you so much, Christina. I really appreciate the invitation and delighted to join you. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about your tweet and what was behind it. But before we clue listeners into what that even means, um, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, I have a very, uh, I wear a lot of hats. So I have a very interesting uh I think, portfolio of jobs that I do simultaneously. (laughs) Um, So as you mentioned, I am a uh, library director of a synagogue library um, in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, I am also uh, an author. I recently published a picture book called The Passover Guest from Holiday House and Neil Porter Books, uh, illustrated by Sean Rubin. And uh, I'm a um, a bookstore consultant. So I work with bookstores, particularly those who are just starting up and help them uh, get everything in order to uh, begin. I'm also an author consultant, but in in kind of a long range planning mode of where people who are uh, children's, children's authors who are trying to sort of sort out their career and the next steps in their career um, and until just a couple of months ago, I was a, a book buyer at a uh, independent bookstore and helped select their books. One of the things I love to learn from my guests is about their own journey through higher ed. Would you be willing to take us back to perhaps high school when you were looking ahead to college? Did you know you wanted to go to college? What did you want to study? And how did you get from there to where you are now? Oh, I have an interesting journey through higher ed. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone's asked me that question so directly, but I have a lot to say about it. Um, <laughs> we're here for it. Go ahead, please. <laughs> okay, so, uh, wow. Uh, so you want me to start in high school? Man, we're, we're going to be here for a while, Christina. Um, uh, you don't have to. Just You can just start wherever is the right starting point to tell us about when you were thinking about yeah. your journey and how it went. <laughs> Well, actually, I think high school is a good place to start. Um, so, um, I well, let's start with this fact, which I think is not talked about very often, and I'd like to talk about more in discussing higher ed, and it's particularly relevant to my experience. Um, I have attention deficit disorder, and that makes it extremely difficult to get into college because pretty much all the those standard things that colleges look at 
are things that people with ADHD do not score well on. So that's, so for example, um, uh, you know, I was talented and gifted. I took honors classes, very smart and all that, but I did badly on the SATs because um, it's very difficult to do well on standardized tests. It's almost impossible to get extra time on those tests. Um, so the SATs, I did badly on it. The, um, the AP classes were just too much for me. Um, I couldn't take them and that counted against me. Um, and because of the workload and the homework, getting homework done. So my, uh, I would work 10 times harder than anyone I knew and I would get C's and D's and F's. And all I did was work. Everyone I knew assumed that I had A pluses because all they saw me was working. Um, and, uh, essays were really hard because a ADHD person writes an essay like the day they're due and they end up uh, turning out really badly. So a lot of the standard, those standard things uh, don't go well. Oh, and the other thing is active activity. So a lot of times I'll hear them say like, oh, we'd like to see that you played the cello for 10 years and didn't start it for a year. But an ADD person um, does like a million activities and they don't have consistency. So all those things make it uh, really do make it difficult to get in college. And I was rejected from pretty much every college I applied to. Uh, so it begins there. That's painful. It is. And I just, you know, 30 years later, uh, I just watched my daughter go through this exact same thing. She also has ADHD. She also got rejected from pretty much every college. And my younger son has ADHD. I'm going to have to go through the same thing in five years. And it's just, you know, it's heartbreaking. Like, I know they're not going to get in. Um and we can talk about being inclusive when we, we can talk about, oh, yeah, we're all pro neurodiversity, but not really, you know. Um, and then when I got went to college, which was at Brandeis University, I was lucky to get in, honestly. Again, you know, a lot of people talk, oh, you know, we partied in college. We had friends in college. Not me. I studied Saturday night, Sunday morning. I mean, that's all I did was study and I was still failing. Um, so, you know, and then people say, oh, you're not trying enough. You're not working hard enough. You're not applying yourself. I don't know what they're talking about. Um, and so then, um, then I, uh, uh, finally after a couple years I got diagnosed and I got a medication prescription and I went from F's to A pluses. I actually have a letter that said you, <laughs> congratulations, you're no longer on academic probation, right, from the Fs. And it was, and the next letter that arrived was, congratulations, you made the dean's list because I had A pluses in every, every subject because I had gone, I had gone from um, uh, Fs to A pluses with that Ritalin prescription. But the Ritalin's not a cure-all and you still have to really uh, worked so hard. And one of the hardest decisions I ever made was going to graduate school because, uh, to get my master's degree in library science, because I was petrified of higher education. To me, it was the hardest thing in the entire world. There was nothing harder, but in libraries, uh, the library field, uh, the master's degree, the MLS is the entry level degree. You must 
have it, it's like an RN or a medical degree, like you can't start the profession really. Although there are other things in the profession, you really need to start it with a master's degree. And there was nothing I wanted to do less than get that master's degree. And, um, and then I get there to the school and they say, well, you're allowed no accommodations because you're in graduate school. So you must've grown out of that disability. So higher education has been challenging for me um, and painful, you know, Uh, but I will say just absolutely killing myself in graduate school. I got a 4.0 and it's one of the biggest accomplishments of my career. I'm just sitting here thinking of that letter, you know, when you got off academic probation and then the letter that came right on its heels that you were, you know, on honor roll, like, does that start to heal all the rejection letters to all the colleges or do you just carry two truths equally? You do. I mean, like, so I got that on the dean's list, but I didn't get it again. You know, I then, it was hard to stay up at that level. I think it's just this thing that we never talk about in higher education, um, how hard it is for people with ADHD. It's just absolutely not discussed. My daughter is taking a gap year. So she did get into one college. She's taking a gap year. And the two of us are terrified of what that's going to look like in going to college. So many ADHD people I know, I mean, and I'm talking dozens of them have flunked out of college. I mean, person after person, after person, after person, it's not created for us. I, you know, I had a class in college. I I was a theater and an English major and the class met on Tuesdays and Thursdays and it was a Shakespeare class. Well, I took theater and English. Shakespeare was inevitable. And, uh, and so like on Tuesday you had to read, you know, Hamlet. And on Thursday you had to read Romeo and Juliet. And on, you know, Tuesday you had to read Tale of the Tuesday. You had to read, you know, Mary Wives of Windsor or whatever. And to keep up with that kind of pace, you know, and you had to write papers in between, like that's just not a pace you can handle. And it's not about immaturity. It's not about not trying enough. It's not about not applying yourself. It's too much, you know? It's about the cost of resilience. Yeah. We talk about resilience. We talk about grit. We talk about tenacity. We talk about not giving up. We don't talk about where that comes from. When they say dig down or dig deep, how much left does a human being have to excavate from themselves when you've been relying on your resilience for a long time? Resilience isn't free. It comes from somewhere within you until you're used up. Yeah. And I mean, did we need to read 25 Shakespeare plays to get the point? I mean, you know, probably not. Um, anyway, so, you know, I was looking at, so the other college I got into, like I said, I got into two out of like the eight or 10 that I applied to. And again, um, I know I'm smart. I know this wasn't the pro and the other one I got into was, um, was Sarah Lawrence. And I was so excited by Sarah Lawrence because there's no grades at Sarah Lawrence. Um, But instead of grades, they have papers due like constantly. And I couldn't handle that. 
So at the one hand, I was like, hey, they make this great accommodation. But on the other hand, no. Like, I can't write a paper every week. So, you know, it was it was very tricky to try to find somewhere that can truly accommodate. And like I said, my daughter and I are both terrified. The number of times she's come up to me and said, I'm going to flunk out of college. And I said, we're going to work on it. But, you know, she's not totally off base. It's a scary thing for parents to send their kids off to college. Yeah. In in any situation. And when you feel that your child won't fully be welcomed there, won't be embraced there. Well, because in high schools, right, the, the teachers are like, well, that paper's not due. You owe us that paper. Well, I've noticed that you've stopped turning in your work, which every ADHD kid ever does. But in college, it's all gone. All the support, all the structure. And so you just fail. Um, I, I try to talk about this as much as I can because I feel that nobody sees this and it's completely invisible. And in college, they purposely say, well, you're an adult now and we're going to take all that off. But it's the same as my graduate school saying, well, you grew out of that disability. You don't need the accommodations anymore. You're in grad school now. You need to grow up. Well, we wouldn't say that to somebody in a wheelchair. We wouldn't say, well, you just need to walk now. Come on. Invisibility, invisible disabilities are the worst. It, to me, they feel like it to me. Not that, of course, it's awful to be in a wheelchair, so I'm not trying to compare that, but they're just terrible. You just Nobody sees them. Nobody expects them. Nobody makes accommodations for them mentally, right? And you're constantly trying to fight for them. You're constantly trying to say, well, can, you know, may I please? I beg you. And most of the things that students ask for as accommodations are things that would make higher ed accessible for all. Well, right. Why? I mean, I was walking around constantly asking for people for untimed tests. Why are the tests timed? If you know the material, you know the material. Does it matter if it takes me one hour or two hours to put that down on a piece of paper? I, I don't see why. It, isn't it just, I mean, I, I once took in high school a test that took everybody um, like an hour or two, and it was a big, important final exam. And I asked the teacher, could I have a little more time? It took me eight hours and I got an A plus plus on it. If I had, if he had stopped me at two hours, I would have gotten an F. I just couldn't put all that information down in two hours, but it wasn't that I didn't know the material. I knew the material just fine. So what are we really testing? My ability to do record, to, you know, regurgitate something fast or my ability to know the material? And I think these are a lot of the questions about the standardized tests as well. You brought up the SAT. Is is it really testing knowledge or is it testing the ability to fit into their specific framework and to guess correctly the specific references they have? There's a lot of cultural biases built into um, standardized tests as well. As I said, I'm very smart and that has come up a lot. And I'm not just saying that to say it. but I don't know, I got like 1,000 on the SATs because um, I didn't have extra time, because my mind didn't think that way, because, because, because. And so I didn't get into any schools except for, you know, one or two. And 
after you finished your journey through higher ed, is that when you went directly into being a librarian? Uh, yeah. So I had a, um, I had a first career. Actually, I worked at a community college and some other places. I had my first career was in theater for about 10 years. And then I started working at a bookstore, a very famous bookstore called Politics and Prose and uh, in Washington, D.C. And then I just came to this realization that I had to go to graduate school. And I like I tried every way around it. Could I be an assistant librarian? Could I do this? Could I do that? And then just that realization that I had to go to graduate school, it was like the most upsetting thing I had. And then, but I, what I did do is you, you try to work it out. So I, I had strategies where I said, okay, um, I was working full time. I had a two-year-old and I said, okay, well, what I'm going to do is take two classes of marking period. Okay. Sorry, not a marking period, um, a semester, two classes. uh, So I'm going to take two classes a semester. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take one class of something I'm really interested in, like children's literature, and then I'm going to take a cataloging class, which is a requirement. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take classes over the summer because that'll help me get through faster and there are fewer people. Uh, Another thing I did was I only took classes from adjunct professors who were library science is a very practical degree, and I wanted teachers who were in a library during the day and then teaching at night. So I wanted the very practical information. So I kept trying to find what was the way I could get through school. How could I do it? Um, And yeah, and so I did all those things. And then when I graduated, I worked at a public library um, as a public children's librarian and then worked at a, uh, then worked at the synagogue library. And simultaneously, I always had two jobs and I was working in bookstores as well. Higher ed had a lot of structural barriers for you. Yes. (laughs) Where did your love of books and your relationship of books come from? Uh, So my love of books came from my mother. We didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid. And we had this very small shelf of books um, like we're talking 20 books, uh, that were on, we had them in my brother's closet. Um, we didn't have a bookcase and they weren't new. They were, they had been bought at, uh, used library book sales, you know, for 50 cents. And those were our books. And then we also went to the library and my mother read to me and my brother every night. And, uh, and that really stayed with me. And one of the books that she read um, was a book called The Magician, which was uh, by this uh, great illustrator and author, Yuri Shelovitz, who, and he had translated that book from an original Yiddish story. And I loved that book so much. And she read it to me over and over. And uh, many, many, many years later, I found that book again in a library and I said, you know, I love this book, The Magician. And what if I changed this? And what if I changed that? You know, it was in the public domain. And uh, eventually that book turned into The Passover Guest, which is the book I just published last year. And with The Passover Guest, you brought it to a younger audience? 
Um, sort of, yeah. So the book, the original Yiddish story was, um, was the magician by Ayal Peretz, the Yiddish writer, and he had published it in, in an anthology for adults. And then, um, Shulovitz had translated it and had made it a picture book as well. But my version was set in a different place in time. So instead of like kind of long ago in Poland, my version is set in, during the Depression in the 1930s. So there are a couple other picture books, but um, mine is in a different time and place than those other ones. So for listeners, can you give them the elevator pitch for the Passover guest? Uh, can you hang on one minute? All right. Sure. Because I... Um, I'm not good at doing it well. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, here. Okay. Uh, so the elevator pitch for the Passover guest is that it's the spring of 1933 in Washington, D.C., and the Great Depression is hitting young Muriel's family hard. Her father has lost his job, and her family barely has enough food most days, let alone for a Passover Seder. They don't even have any wine to leave out for the Prophet Elijah ceremonial cup. With no feast to rush home to, Muriel wanders by the Lincoln Memorial, where she encounters a mysterious magician in whose hands juggled eggs become lit candles. After she makes a kind gesture, he urges her to run home for her Seder, and once she does... She encounters a holiday miracle and a bountiful feast. But who was this mysterious benefactor? When Muriel sees Elijah's ceremonial cup and finds that it is empty, she has a good idea. Well, I hope listeners will find that book. I'm, I'm waiting on your publisher to send it to me so I can read it. Um, and we will link uh, the books that we're going to be talking about today in the show notes so listeners can find them and learn more about them. Um, and so we talked a bit off air uh, about your journey to publication. You're a member of SCBWI, which is um, a children's book writing organization that's international and has a lot of members. Um and you had your own journey to get your book published. Do you want to share a bit about that? Sure. Um, yes. And, uh, and I really do recommend, as you said, SCBWI, Society for Children's Books Writers and Illustrators, um, for anyone who is interested in um, or has already written a children's book or illustrated one, they are a really great organization to help with the next steps. Um, so... I always talk about my journey to get published as as being very unusual. Usually, you um, you know you write for a long time and then you polish it, polish it, make sure it's perfect, and then you uh, submit queries to an agent, and then you eventually get an agent, and then the agent submits to the uh, to many editors, and then an editor hopefully selects the book and then uh, you work with the editor and you get the book published. And my experience was not that at all, uh, which was that how, what I, what I did is I already had a, uh, as a librarian, as a bookseller, um, I know a lot of people in the publishing world and 
I had a relationship, a friendship with editor Neil Porter, and we we had discussed um, this book, uh, The Passover Guest, and he was interested. And we kept discussing it over a number of years. And, um, and then eventually, and very happily, he said yes. And over those years, he kept editing it until it got to a good point. And then um, once that happened, I got an agent and then there was a contract. And so it, it happened kind of in a backwards way. But uh, I wrote it for several years first. And then Neil and I worked together on it for about six years. And um, and then Neil found, uh, with the help of uh, my agent, found the uh, illustrator, Sean Rubin. And so it all, it all kind of came together. But it, the whole thing from first word on a piece of paper to book in my hand was a 10 year process. And well, it sounds like a long journey when I speak to authors, both on air and off, it's not atypical, right? It's getting a book published can be a long journey, even for authors who are already published. Mm -hmm. Things aren't necessarily published in the order that they wrote them. They'll say, Oh, well, I wrote this book first and I thought it was going to get published, but actually these other two got published and that one just took a long meandering path. And it's not, um, it's not as clear and crisp as one might think. Yeah. I'm about, uh, six years into the second book, (laughs) which is also a picture book. And sometimes, you know, there are things that people don't, think about or consider, right? Like, um, like, you know, maybe you want for a picture book, you want an illustrator, but that illustrator has two or three books ahead of you. So you have to wait two or three years for that illustrator or, um, you know, during the pandemic books got delayed, um, or, you know, there was big paper shortages, supply chain issues. So the book you thought was coming out in a certain year is coming out a year or two later. Um, books get moved from, you know, the fall season to the spring season all the time. So it's not always so clear cut. Um, You know, so it might take like a year for the illustrator to illustrate. It might take a year for the book to get marketed and printed and all that. So it's not, you know, well, I had an idea for a book or, oh, well, they signed the contract. So it's coming out tomorrow. It's not like that in any way. Your day job is being a library director for a synagogue library. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic job. I love doing it. And you recently, a few weeks ago now, uh, wrote a tweet that became viral. Uh, do you want to tell us about the tweet? (laughs) I, I did. So, um, yeah, it was incredibly unexpectedly viral. Um, you, as I was saying uh, before we started talking on air, that you never know when something is going to become viral. But um, yeah, it, so the the tweet was about uh, this book, "The Boy in the Striped Pajamas" by John Boyne, and um, my colleagues, uh, um, Jewish librarian colleagues, and I have been talking about this book for many years, and not just us, many other people. Um, the the book has been proven to be factually inaccurate um, about uh, the Holocaust. And 
while it's not the first book to be factually inaccurate, the issue is that it is the most taught Holocaust book. And so that be in the U.S. And so that becomes problematic because then a lot of uh, children walk away with the impression that this is what happened during the Holocaust because it's their main frame of reference. So I uh, posted a few tweets about it, and then it became so viral that I just started answering more and more and more and more questions. And so it became quite an involved, quite an involved tweet. And then, and then it got, oh, excuse me, oh, sorry, um, it got reposted on Instagram. Um, so between Instagram and Twitter, it got not so far away from 200,000 likes and in, in addition to, you know, 12,000 retweets. So all that was very surprising. When I, when I checked it this morning, it was at, uh, about 11 and a half thousand retweets over 400 quote tweets mm. and over 61,000 likes. And that was uh, on Twitter. On Twitter. Yeah. And it, it went even higher on Instagram. Thanks to uh, this great organization called the conscious kid that reposted it there. And the tweet says in all caps, please don't tweet teach or recommend the boy in the striped pajamas. It is the number one taught Holocaust book. It sympathizes with the Nazis. It is factually inaccurate. You shared with me off air that you have tweeted about that before and like three people read it. Right. That generally is the case. Um, we, uh, uh, in this case of a friend of mine um, was uh, talking about, you know, she mentioned in another group that we run, she said, oh, you know, we should all reach I'll tweet one more time about the boy in the striped pajamas because there's a sequel coming out. So we want to remind people again um, that, you know, as the sequel comes out, we want to remind them that, that uh, and, and this, uh, that this is problematic. And, uh, and so I actually wrote this post on Facebook and it got 11 likes. And then I wrote it on Twitter and it just started, um, going crazy. So, you know, it's so weird sometimes, you know. And while you were urging people not to teach this, you were also providing factual information. Um, in one of the subtweets for it, you said, we talk about the same few concentration camps and ghettos, but there were actually 44,000 it wasn't just Germany and Poland, but Jews were sent to their death from more than 20 countries controlled by the Nazis. Concentration camps started in 1933. In the tweet, you also not only provide the names of books that you do recommend, but you also provided links and pictures of book covers. Um, will you tell us um, what books you do recommend? Yeah, so I did. So I'm, as I said, I'm a librarian, and I believe in correct information. And so there were a lot of people discussing it with me, and I wanted to continue to provide links. And a lot of my friends said, "Oh, you should stop responding." And I said, "Yeah, but I can't leave incorrect information out there." Um, so I kept responding and kept responding and kept responding. Um, 
so even if I'd said something 50 times, I said it the 51st time in case there was someone who didn't, who, who wanted the answer, somebody who wanted the answer, because I, I felt so important to keep providing information. Um, I really thought this book, the book that I really strongly recommended um, was uh, We Must Not Forget Holocaust Stories of Survival and Resistance by Deborah Hopkinson. And uh, Deborah has impressed me again and again with her books on many topics. For example, she has this amazing book on the Titanic. I'm a Titanic expert and I've read dozens of books on the Titanic and Deborah's is to me the best. Um, but so she read the, wrote this book on um, the Holocaust, we must not forget. And it's just to me astonishing because it um, it's so many different stories of different people, which is great. We, you know, we see, I think, I believe in telling actual stories of actual survivors and what happened and showing it's absolutely age appropriate. And it, uh, it has fantastic, well-researched back matter and timelines and everything you could need. But what's so amazing about what Deborah does is that in every single story, no matter where it's at, who, who the, um, how the story is told, she puts an element of Jewish resistance in the, into it. And lately we are seeing so many stories of righteous Gentiles and righteous Gentiles are very important. These are people like Oscar Schindler who saved Jews, but we're, but those stories are told from the stories of the saviors. They're not told, you know, to me, like, you know, like this book we had a few years ago where it was like, it was Jews hiding in the attic and there was a woman downstairs who was Christian and she was the one that we saw the story from. I wanted to hear about the Jews in the attic. And, um, and that's what, uh, you know, Deborah's showing us is that, you know, Jews fought back and yet we either only have, um, you know, we have all these righteous Gentile books or the only books that we're showing kids are books that about the camps and the, ghettos and, and and those are so important but we should show the full story and we're not showing the full story so deborah shows the full story and another book that i recommended about uh the resistance is called beyond courage the untold story of jewish resistance um during the holocaust and this is by doreen rapaport which who is another excellent author and who also gives us this bigger picture that we don't usually teach Some of the things that came up in the thread were, while teaching the Holocaust and talking about the camps and the ghettos is important, what's also important is the passivity of so many people in that time period. Yeah, and and the fact that they weren't passive. Do you, do you mean the Jews or everybody else? Oh, sorry. No, I was not uh, referring to, to Jewish people. I was referring to people who felt like it, it wasn't theirs to get involved in oh, or it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't true or it wasn't affecting anybody that they knew or because it was happening in concentration camps, then they weren't involved. It wasn't their fault. They couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. I mean, that is the thing that we're fighting today is well because because it's over there because it's not happening to me i was having a conversation the other night with a jewish group of people like two days ago and we were talking about this 
and everyone at the table was Jewish, and everyone looked around and said, whose attic would you hide in? And every person said, I know the name of whose attic I would hide in. I've already figured that out. Everyone knew. Because we know this is not long ago and far away. Everyone at that table had a valid, active passport. Everyone at the table was ready to leave the country if they had to, including me. We all know this is our life today. It's not our life in 1943 in Germany. You bring that up uh, in your tweets. Yes. Not just this one, but in other ones, that we can't look at it as something that was long ago or something that was far away. Um, Do you want to talk about some of your more recent things that you've shared about trying to present at a conference and feeling that putting the word Jewish in the title or clearly in the presentation reduces your chances of having it accepted? Yeah. So I think that people think that anti-Semitism is ghettos and camps or the KKK. Actually, the number of times that I've been told the KKK doesn't pertain to Jews is kind of shocking because... Were they not paying attention in Charlottesville? Um, We know the KKK is coming after us. Um, And actually, I kind of, um, like at least with the white supremacists, that's a very obvious kind of anti-Semitism, right? You know, like... There's so much that I'm not, you don't hear about. So, all right. So on January 6th, a lot of people are talking about it in this, you know, with the whole thing with the Capitol, right? A lot of people talk about it in this very abstract way of, um, oh, you know, they talk about it. It was those people over there who, who this group of people that wasn't them and they don't understand. Well, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., And what happened on January 6th was terrifying. That was not like a group of people over there trying to get into a Capitol. That was people five minutes from my house that were saying anti-Semitic words, wearing anti-Semitic T-shirts, five minutes from my children. Like Jewish institutions in the D.C. area closed that day. I don't hear people talking about that. It was terrifying. It wasn't abstract. But when whenever that day gets mentioned, like there's horror that comes to me. It's like PTSD. There was a curfew that day. I I guess you know, if you don't live here, you don't see that and it, I felt directly attacked. Um anyway, um Yeah. So to me, you know, there's these two kinds of anti-Semitism, right? There's the obvious anti-Semitism, you know, that Charlottesville, Jews will not replace us. And the the subtle anti-Semitism coming from the other side of, you know, we need to stand up for every diversity and every group and everyone's important. Oh, but not the Jews. Um, there's a book by comedian, uh, British comedian David Baddiel called Jews Don't Count, where he talks about all the ways that uh, people make clear that Jews are not important to them. They don't count. 
And that's what this is. So, you know, you go to conferences and um, you see all these great presentations and all these great diverse groups. And it's wonderful to see these presentations. And, you know, we've fought so hard to have them and that's so terrific. Um, But as somebody who uh, is trying to make professional uh, presentations at conferences, I have watched just, I mean, a dozen, two dozen, over and over, will will present you know across divisions, across associations, with well known speakers. We will put in proposal after proposal after proposal. We'll put in like five a year on various topics with well known speakers with good credentials, and just five a year will be turned down. Next year, five more will be turned down. Next year, five more will be turned down. It, you know. It, And then people say, oh, well, you know, it's so hard to get a proposal in. And you don't see the same topic, but without the word Jewish in it, be presented. And, you know, it can't be that hard just to watch our dozens of proposals be turned down. And I'm I'm really worn out. I'm worn out. Just, you know, can't get up in front of people and speak. And whenever we do luckily enough get in front of people, they're like, wow, those are such good points. And we never knew that. And thanks for saying that. And why haven't you said it before? I'm like, we haven't said it before because no one will let us up here to talk. So um, I don't know. It's getting, it's getting old. In your tweets, you talked about needing more books Mm. (laughs) and while the holocaust will always be important to teach and important to teach properly and important to teach factually even in historical fiction the facts still have to be impeccable you also need books about jewish joy about Jewish characters living a variety of lives and circumstances. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So this is the thing that we are always talking about. Um, Actually, I just gave a conference presentation on it. Uh, (laughs) um, But that was to a Jewish group. Um, Yeah. So we're always talking about... um, exactly what you're saying about Jewish joy. You know, I, I have this joke, which isn't really a joke where I say, you know, if we don't get the, if we don't get books about the Holocaust, which right now are one in two children's books we counted, um, are about the Holocaust and they absolutely are super important to, um, to have books on. We just one in two is a very high number. Um, so, um, and a lot of those are righteous Gentile and, uh, savior books and just, you know, you know, a lot of them have, are kind of problematic, but, um, so, so my joke is that if we don't get books about the Holocaust and about pogroms where Jews were forcibly, you know, had to leave Egypt. Uh, Let me try it again. Um, So if we don't get books about the Holocaust and we don't get books about pogroms, which were about how Jews were forced to leave Europe and um, violently, and that's a lot of the Ellis Island immigration stories, 
then we are really lucky and we get books about the Spanish Inquisition where Jews were, you know, forced to leave Spain at the pain of death. So those are the types of books we usually get. But we do exactly what you're saying, uh, want books about Jewish joy. And um, we want diversity and intersectionality in everything, in every way in Judaism. And um, what I am always constantly saying is that what I want in my Jewish library is to see the same kind of books that I could see in a public library. So, you know, like uh, a lot more graphic novels, more fantasy, sci-fi, so much more comedy, STEM, uh, books on holidays that other than Hanukkah, uh, books set all over the world, um, all forms of Judaism, like reform, conservative, reconstructionist, orthodox, non-practicing, um, uh, and uh, but uh, I what I want also is books that are not long ago and far away, because if they're all set like in Poland a hundred years ago, then we are see Jews as other and. We don't see them as our neighbors. We don't see them as people that we're going to protect or hide in our attic tomorrow. As a librarian, what's on your wish list? What books do you want to get published so you can put them on your shelves? Oh, I was actually literally just reading you my wish list. Um, (laughs) But I'll include some more. Um, uh, so I would love to see more LGBTQ, uh, a lot more neurodiversity of all types. Um, I'm going to just keep saying graphic novels because the kids in my library uh, will thank me for that. Um, break out from some of the Jewish tropes. So we see fantasy, but we see a lot of golems and there are so many other Jewish figures. Um I haven't seen a, I would like to see more children's cookbooks and crafts and those kind of books, Um, more Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews, and not only Ashkenazic, Um, a lot of interfaith representation and non-Jewish parents raising Jewish children, Jewish music, theater, and arts, poetry, um, immigration stories that are not centered around Ellis Island or the Holocaust. Um, Really, really wanting early readers, kind of like Elephant and Piggy and early chapter books like Magic Treehouse. There's almost none in the Jewish world. Um, Life cycle events that are not bar mitzvahs. And Jewish stories that have contemporary settings, uh, depictions of contemporary anti-Semitism, like some of the ones that I'm describing, and uh, traditional Torah stories that are not Noah's Ark or creation. And uh, this is a big one. We, particularly in series biographies, we see books about biographies on Anne Frank, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Albert Einstein, and Harry Houdini, and uh, they are not the only four Jews in the world. You've named a lot of gaps in the literature. As a librarian and someone who works in advising booksellers, there's a great joy in putting the right book in the right person's hands. What are some books that you love the opportunity to put into people's hands? Oh, man, so many. Hang on. Let me um, 
I know it's always painful to be like, name your favorite book. No, let me just look into my catalog real quick. One second. Um, oh, I have so many favorite books. It's, it's really hard to, <laughs> um, wow. I really need to make a, like Susan's favorite list. That would be wonderful. Yeah. What are some that you've been recommending to people recently or uh, personally handing to people recently when they come into the library? So many. Hang on. Uh, I'll look at my new list just a second. I mean, it's like there are dozens, right? I really should do that. Um, recently. Okay. Um, so I really like the book of Elsie. It's by Joanne Levy. And it's, uh, it shows um, contemporary anti-Semitism. It also shows um, Horam in a, in a book that isn't a picture book. And it also is this early chapter book that I'm uh, talking about. Um, uh, there was this great new book by Michael Twitty called Kosher Soul, which is uh, the intersection of Jewish cooking and, and black cooking. And it was is really a uh, terrific uh, look at both those things. I like A Synagogue Just Like Home by Alison Blumenthal McGinty. This is a nice way of how the whole synagogue pulls together as a community, which I think is a really important thing. Um, I have so many. <laughs> it's, it's always a painful question for book lovers. Yeah. Um, Ellen Outside the Lines by A.J. Sass has a lot of great intersectionality. Um, there's a really wonderful new board book series by Vicki Weber, A New Week, Time for Bed, Shabbat Shalom, and Start the Day. Um I could name you another hundred. <laughs> um, Maybe two more? Two more. Hang on. Um, are these like favorites ever or just, I mean, I can just do my favorite. So the, the graphic novel that I always recommend um, to everybody is a book called, it's a trilogy. It's called Hereville by Barry Dooch. And there's three books in the Hereville in the in the trilogy, uh, how Mirka got her sword, how uh, which is number one, how Mirka met a meteorite, and how Mirka caught a fish, and um, they are just really fantastic books. They're 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 um orthodox and they're uh comedy and the um the tagline on the first hereville is yet another troll fighting 11 year old orthodox jewish girl and this is what i want more of uh truly is that kind of great stuff and then the Another series that I really recommend is a great middle grade uh, fantasy series, which is called um, Anya and the Dragon by Sophia Pasternak. There's a follow-up, Anya and the Nightingale. And these are, again, just these great Jewish fantasy books. You know, these are exactly the kind of things we're looking for. 
Well, you've given listeners uh, a book list to go out and start reading. So thank you for that. Well, well and I want to recommend one other thing. There's um, So the Association of Jewish Libraries, which I'm very involved with and a wonderful organization, and you don't need to be Jewish or a librarian to join, so we hope you do. Um, Every year, uh, they give out the Sydney Taylor Book Awards, named in honor of Sydney Taylor, who wrote All of a Kind Family. And there are fantastic Jewish books um, on that list in uh, picture books, middle grade and young adult, um, winners, honors, and notables. And so there's a lot to choose from. So that's the book list that I really recommend uh, on the um, Jewish Libraries, uh, on the um, Association of Jewish Libraries website. And I'm really honored this past year that uh, our book, The Passover Guest, um, actually won the Sydney Taylor Award uh, after uh, after I was the chair of it for many years. And it was it was really quite a quite an, an accomplishment. Yes. Did you read the All of a Kind family books when you were young? <laughs> so I talk about that a lot. Um, so I was between chairing and being on the committee and past chairing. Uh, I was a I was involved with the committee for six years and then I like completely didn't speak to anyone or anything when my book was eligible. So, uh, which was weird, but, um, so it was like six years on the committee and, um, right. All anyone wanted to talk about was that. And I met Sydney Taylor's daughter and I was, you know, sitting next to her and so many people would come up to her and say how great all the kind family was. And, um, I never read it as a kid. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Because everyone in the universe has. And so many people uh, said, you know, it was, and a lot of non-Jewish people uh, would say it was life-changing for them. And it was the first book they read that was Jewish. And I mean, I would hear all these things and I felt terrible that I had never read it. Um, and I did read it when I got onto the committee, of course. But, you know, but the thing that I also said, as much as it's great, it's a wonderful book and a wonderful series, and I'm very excited. There's a new uh, television series coming out, and I'm really excited about that. But the thing is, you know, it wouldn't have represented me. I was a, you know, reformed Jew in Washington, D.C., and these were Orthodox Jews in New York, they weren't really me. I, I wouldn't have been a window or a mirror for me. I would have been a um, a window, but it wouldn't have been a mirror for me, even though they were Jewish and I was Jewish. Why do you think those books have endured so much? Oh, they're wonderful. You know, they're, they're so great to read and you feel like you know them and um, it, the writing is great. And, and a lot of people do like, that's the Jewish book that they discovered. And I think that's terrific. Um, and I, you know, and it was an honor to be on that committee in honor of her. And it was really, uh, it was really quite something to, um, win the award, you know, that, you know, that was really a incomparable, uh, moment and uh, and there is for anyone who is really um, who really loved uh, all the kind family in addition to the books and this new series coming out. There's a really great nonfiction book called uh, From Sarah to Sydney: The Woman Behind All the Kind Family by June Cummings, published by Yale University Press last year. That I can't recommend enough. Thank you for that. I didn't know about that one. 
Yeah, she, June worked for years and years and years on that book. So, and that's Princeton University. Uh, Yale. Yeah. Thank you. You've introduced me to so many new books today. I'm I'm furiously taking notes while we're uh, while we're talking. This is this is a wonderful list. Um, what inspires you? What inspires me in anything particular? Or <laughs> um, well, it's an open question. If it's about if you want to answer it in a bookish way or as a writer, um, as a human, it's it's an open question. I mean, I mean, I think I could answer it in all of them, but I would say my children, I am inspired to make a better world, a safer world for my children, uh, where we have less anti-Semitism, where we have more books they can read. Um, I want, I want them to have what I didn't have because I have had not very many books, and I've had a lot of anti-Semitism. You know, I, um, not to bring down the inspiring comment here, but, you know, but I did want to talk a little bit about how people do see anti-Semitism as very far away. When things happen, they're not far away for me, right? You know, when the Pittsburgh shooting happened, there was a, you know, we suddenly got a full-time security guard at my synagogue when the, um, when the hostage situation happened in Texas, we got a security firm all the time. I don't want to go deeper into the security because I can't really do that. Uh, for security purposes, but uh, people forget about these things, but they're there every day for me. The number of trainings, the, you know, it's not abstract. And I want to create a world that for my children that isn't like that. I mean, it is hard to just go to your office and feel that you are taking your life in your hands every time you do it. I don't want that to be my legacy. What do you hope listeners take away? Well, that. <laughs> um, I, I want them to, I would like listeners to take away the fact that Jews are diverse that when we say things like, oh, it doesn't matter what's in this book, so what if, you know, this book sympathizes with the Nazis, who does that hurt? You know, it hurts me. It hurts my community. It causes people to walk into buildings with guns and shoot us. It matters a lot. And when we are sympathetic and understanding of every minority, of every diversity. I would like them to be sympathetic and understanding of Jews who are not just religion, but who are a culture. And it's getting dangerous to live in this world. And it's getting exhausting to be um, the, the, the microaggressions that we're experiencing just daily over and over and over again. And then you're told 
that they're not right. So that's the thing, right? You know, it's this, it's this daily struggle where on the one hand you're being just surrounded with anti-Semitism, and on the other hand you're being told, well, there is no anti-Semitism. Why are you complaining? And to go through that every day, hour by hour, I am so tired of that. I am tired of this constant battle. And um, I would like to make it just a little bit easier in the tiniest of ways. I would like there... I would like publishers to turn down fewer books because the publishers are turning down a lot of these books that I listed. I would like to be able to speak up at conferences. I would like to be on panels um, because it's assumed that we're diverse and Jewish. And I would, I would like this all to be easier and a lot more. And I would like to have books to show my children and other children Anyway, I would like this not to be so hard. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Susan Cusell, and telling us about your tweet and everything that was behind it. I hope you'll come back and talk with us again. Oh, anytime. Maybe I won't be so depressing next time. (laughs) I want you to show up as you and tell us what you have to say, please. Thank you truly for having me and uh, thank you to everyone for listening. I know that my Jewish experience is mine alone. And if you're Jewish and listening, I respect that it's different from yours. And so um, thanks to listen. Thank you to listening to mine. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and I hope you will please join us again. <laughs>